Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, so, so, so for those of you who've um, uh, listened to my earlier talks, uh, I'm following the life of the Buddha. And um, we got as far as his enlightenment, and then we went into details about Mara, the evil one. And um, I had only meant to take one talk over the hindrances but I ended up taking two and I haven't finished them yet so <laughs> I don't want to uh, overplay that so I'm going to leave the uh, the other ones aversion, doubt and all that uh, which I'm sure you know anyway so I wanted to move on to the question of <clears throat> so what was his awakening you know what what was it that he discovered and uh, how did that translate into uh, practice and I'm, I'm not going to say anything which is going to surprise you but at least it's uh, just a, an occasion to reflect on what his awakening was all about so <clears throat> if we go back uh, to that point where he's sitting by the roadside and the rice pudding turns up and um, this uh, enlivens him and fills him with great glee as you know rice pudding does and he went off to make the great determination to sit beneath the tree, saying that he would not rise from this posture even if he were to die. And so he sat there, and he went to sit, remember, with that memory of the child, the child who uh, watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony. That um, uh, ability of the child just to receive, especially, you know, around about the age of uh, one onwards, you know, to about six. Just that ability to let the jaw drop and the eyes wide open and just that entire receptivity with no mentation at all. There's nothing, there's nothing guarding anything coming in because uh, there's, there's not enough history, there's not enough experience uh, to block or to play around with. So seeing, or seeing his father doing the ploughing ceremony was a surprise, it was a joy for him. And with that, uh, what we now understand to be sati, that awareness, sati panya, with intuitive intelligence, just that receptiveness, which is the definition of equanimity, remember, the ability to receive without reaction. He went and sat, and luckily uh, for him, and for us, of course, he uh, finally cracked the puzzle, his koan, see, is there an end to suffering? And... Uh, the context of his, of his uh, awakening, it's uh, the normal one that, uh, shall we say, accepted was his insight into past lives, his own past lives. His insight or his being able to see how people were reborn according to their um, moral or immoral actions and that he knew that the asawa were completely destroyed. The floods, uh, uh, we'll come back to that. 
So there are three, three things that he understood. The first one, when he was able to review his past lives and understand how he got to where he, where he was then, it became a personal understanding. You might say a personal law. But when that um, uh, ability to go beyond himself to see other beings arising and passing away according to what became the law of karma, what, would, what had been a personal law then becomes a cosmic law. And that's what he taught. He taught the law of karma and the law of rebirth. And the asava, these um, floods as they're called, um, they, there are three of them. The, normally there are three, then somebody added a fourth one uh, in the later scriptures. The first one is, of course, the, uh, the flood of um, uh, desire for sensual pleasure. Here, sensual, you have to uh, stretch out a bit to include emotional you know, emotional pleasure. It's, it's, the sen- it's the pleasure of the senses, which includes the mind and heart. So it's the whole pleasure syndrome, seeking pleasure in the phenomenal world, or in the transient world. And uh, the second one is, of course, the, the desire to become, to continue, to keep reappearing as uh, myself. And the third one is ignorance. And the ignorance was then uh, reinforced by the idea of this flood of a wrong view. So, in a sense, the wrong view is an expression of ignorance as to why they added on. I don't know. But those three um, were the basic uh, asava that he had destroyed. Okay? These asava, these floods, it's like uh, the image that I have is of a painting of a watercolour where the artist first puts a wash across the, the back. You see, sometimes you get watercolours on a black background, don't you? Or at least uh, I've seen them like that. Uh, They might use oil, I can't remember. But anyway, they put a wash on the back, you see, and this wash gives the whole picture a certain tone. So if we look at our uh, mind-heart complex, the psyche, hmm, then it has these three basic tones. It has the, the tone of seeking happiness in sensual pleasure the tone of wanting to become, to become, to become, and uh, the tone of that ignorance, which is that wrong relationship that we have with uh, the world we're in. Now, when he talks about the world we're in, uh, he then talks about the Four Noble Truths. And these Four Noble Truths, uh, the truth of uh, you know that there is suffering, just a, just a straightforward statement, the cause of suffering, which is that desire for sensual pleasure in the phenomenal world, and that there is an end. So there's your prognosis, not bad, is it? That there is an end to this uh, uh, constant misery, and that there's a path which leads to that place. And uh, in that, uh, the, the Four Noble Truths, uh, it's, it's off the, you'll get one, one way he says it, where he says... Um, loke, you see, loke, in this world there is suffering. When he then defines loke, he says, in this fathom-length body. So this suffering, this karma, this, uh, this onward going, this samsara, is happening actually within us, within the mind itself. And what he uh, discovered was that there was a position which lay beyond that. 
right? a position which lay beyond that. And I've got a sort of couple of quotes, if I can find them here. Um, so one of them is, for instance, <clears throat> there is a sphere. Now, a sphere, an ayatana, is a, is a, um, um, a sphere or a, uh, a level of experience which don't overlap. So, for instance, uh, through, your eye, through our eyes, we see form and color. Through our nose, we, we have this smells or aroma. And you can't, you, can't, you can't see through your nose and you can't smell through your eyes. I mean, you can try, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> and that's, that's what he means by a sphere. So there are six spheres, the sixth one being the mind itself. And now he's saying that there is another sphere, there is a sphere which is to be experienced, direct experience, where the eye stops and perception and the perception of form fades away or, you know, disappears. And that perception is the mental noting, right? So there's a, there's a sphere where form and perception disappears uh, to do with the eye. The same with ear and sound, they disappear. The perception of sound, like that's a bird or that's pleasant. Uh, the nose and smells, aroma, the tongue and its tastes, body with its sensation, and the intellect with its mental objects, so the images and the thoughts. All that disappear. And he says this sphere should be realized. So there he is pointing to something which goes beyond this body, this mind, this heart, the five candors, yeah, the five aggregates, and... Uh, as he uses them here, the six spheres or the six avenues of consciousness. So we can only know the world through these six consciousnesses. We can only see it, smell it, hear it, and so on, and we can only know it as an internal image. See? So what he's saying is that there's a place beyond that. Having stated that, he points out that this can't be got by a simple act of will. You just can't get there by saying, well, okay, you know, let's take a rocket or something and, and get up to that sphere. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. It's beyond the will. It's beyond the self. And if you remember his next talk, having, having laid out, at least this is in the mythology, you know, the, the way the scriptures were later uh, collected, he then talked about the self. Now... Um, this uh, sphere that is to be known, which is beyond all else, uh, is, is beyond the dualistic world, it's beyond objects, and therefore it can't be, it can't be known as an object. Hmm? So it's something which is totally subjective experience, and it cannot be known as an object, and therefore um, somehow we have to, as it were, approach it by some little trick. So, <clears throat> what all the Buddha is saying is, all you have to do is look at whatever is arising and passing away and simply know that that's not me, not mine. So here, the, 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 the knowledge comes into a direct practice. And that's what he means by this satipanya, this awareness and intelligence. And he's saying that, if we can take this position within ourselves of the observer, if we can find that observation post and begin to see things within ourselves as objects, then very slowly at least we'll be very clear as to what we are not. And it's presumed that if we're very clear as to what we are not, then hopefully 
eventually will be very clear as to what we actually are. That's the, that's the, the idea, anyway, of the practice. So, um, how do we do that? How do we, you know, what, what process do we use in order to access that vantage point where we can begin to investigate things so that it liberates? What's it liberating? It's liberating that which is this special sphere. And what is the content or what is, the, uh, what's it, what is that made up of? It's the sati, it's the panya, it's the awareness and the wisdom, it's the looking, it's the, it's the seeing, it's the looking and the seeing. So he always says, first of all, you look and then you see. So if you take that into your life, in ordinary daily life, you can see that, first of all, you've got to look. If something goes wrong with the car, you've got to open the bonnet and have a look. And then when you look, you see. So it's the same with um, anything, that, that process of looking, but we're looking, remember, with that attitude of wanting to know. So that has to be there. Yeah? There has to be that desire of wanting to know. So uh, what is it that we want to know? We cannot know Nibbāna. We cannot know the end of suffering directly. We can't turn round upon it and say, gotcha. See, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> so if you think of an archer, this is uh, an image that works for me anyway, when they are firing the arrow at the, uh, at the distant target, they never point it at the target directly. They're always pointing it up in the air somewhere. And they know that if it travels at a certain volume, uh, a certain speed, and it passes through that point, it's going to hit the target. So, the Buddha shifts that sort of investigation away from Nibbāna. He says, don't worry about that. He says, that will arise in its own good time. He says, just shift it towards the way you are looking. Hmm? So, this, this element that we have in us, in, uh, in uh, Theravada, it's, it's dryly referred to as the Nibbāna Dhatu, the element of Nibbāna, which I think um, uh, takes on a certain... Uh, fleshy quality when you call it bodhicitta, the uh, the heart-seeking uh, enlightenment. So when when that um, uh, arises, when 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 we actually bring that forward by lifting this awareness to look at what is happening within the body and mind, he says, "Don't worry about nibbana and all that sort of stuff." He says, "Just see how you're looking." And then he gives us these three vantage points, the anicca, the dukkha, the anatta, the sense of impermanence. Um, how, where is the suffering? Where is it? Where is it in, in this complex of the body, mind, heart? Where is the suffering? Where is it arising from? What's actually the cause of that suffering? And then the more subtle um, teaching of not-self. So, He's, um, he's taken our gaze away from worrying about Nibbāna, worrying about liberation, all that sort of stuff. And he says, why not investigate what you are experiencing from these three vantage points? So when we're looking and we take the vantage point of anicca, of, of transience and impermanence, we're becoming aware of that quality that everything is in a process of change. Now, if we center simply on that, you see, then you'll find that the mind is very much aware of the beginning of things, but not the end of things. Because beginning, new, for us, symbolizes something, um, something exciting. Hmm? Even if it's uh, 
uh, something horrible. There's still a, a sense of awareness that it is beginning. Then, as it begins to end, uh, our, our attention really goes to what is the next beginning. So we always know who the new uh, film star is or pop star, but we never actually know what happens to them. We know <laughs> they've disappeared. <laughs> they just fade away from, from uh, consciousness, from uh, cultural consciousness. So uh, by putting the attention on the ending of things, on the ending of things, we begin to see that actually this process, this process of change is not a continuum. It, th- there is an actual stopping. There is an actual stopping. This, uh, uh, the, um, the uh, image there is of a row of billiard balls. Hmm? So they're all joined up together, but they're actually all separate. Usually that's explained as being, a po- uh, being, uh, uh, being uh, showing the difference between uh, the Buddhist position on this and the Hindu position, which says that there's something which continues through the arising and passing away of things. So it's like a row of beads with a string through it. So if you were, if, but the, the, the Buddhist position is radical change. It actually, something completely finishes before something else can begin. And um, that radical change, as we get into it, you see, so as we get into it, there's, an in, there's a, shall we say, a seeing of it from the point of view of the intellect, the point of view of actually understanding things arise and pass away. But it's actually at the emotional level, it's at the heart level that it begins to strike home. So even though in, in our school uh, we go for the minuscule, we go for the actual seeing of things in, in the minute, watching the rising and falling of the breath and even eventually the rising and falling of a sequence of sensations, at the heart level it doesn't have to be that particular fine at all. Somebody who uh, close to us close to us who dies can hit you just as hard as watching the arising and falling of the breath. And it's hitting at a point of attitude. Hmm? And when that attitude is broken, that this, is, uh, th- this has some continuity, when that attitude is broken, it reverberates back onto our understanding. So there's, there's always different ways in which the quality of transience can strike us. And um, it's, it's constantly putting that attention there, you see, that there is this slow beginning to understand what's happening. Now, what is it that's arising and passing away? So remember that the Buddha's teaching is that everything is mind. Hmm? Our knowledge of the outside world is totally dependent upon the senses that we have. So even though we're in this room together and, and nobody would dispute that this uh, meditation hall actually sort of exists when we go away, in other words, our mind is not actually creating this hall, the fact of the matter is, all of us have walked into it, we all have a different view of it, a, a slightly different feel of it, and so on. So in a sense, our experience of this hall is all varied, individual, and, uh, and that's true for everything we experience. It's only through language and general uh, uh, communication that we can get across to people that we generally see the world as they do. And, of course, some we don't. And, uh, therefore, you, you, you get this image of um, parallel universes. We're all, <laughs> we're all sort of running parallel to each other in some way. Sometimes we sort of crash a bit. But the idea is that everything that I know is within my mind. 
So all these, all these um, uh, stimuli, the light, the smells, the touch and all that, they're all being brought into this central box, which uh, we call the brain, but there's also, in Buddhist understanding, uh, a mind, mind matter there, which is a, should we say, a more subtle form, which produces for us a picture. Hmm? Now, we know that from our own uh, knowledge of, of how the brain works. This picture that we get is, shall we say, that act of cognition. Hmm? And there's something that knows it. There's something that knows, that, that has a, a double take on it. It knows it knows. Hmm? And that picture, as it were, is arising and passing away, holding an image for us so that we can grasp it. And then it disappears and the next image comes up, dependent on the stimuli coming in from the outside through the senses or from the inside through our memories. Hmm? And when we see that the world is arising and passing away, I think personally it would be truer to say that what we're watching is our minds arising and passing away, the actual act of cognition. Now, to see that is, of course, uh, uh, undermines the idea that I can be that. Hmm? So Anicca, the quality of transience, does refer back to the self. And this is what the Buddha said, if you remember, in the discourse that I read. Is something which arises and passes away to be, uh, to be understood as me, mine, and so on. Hmm? So that quality of, of radical impermanence uh, does reflect back to the not-self. Hmm? And in so doing, of course, it, it ruptures a, a type of relationship that we have, which is a holding on. Um, remember that the self is constantly trying to build a world of comfort around itself, hmm? a, a sort of castle, so that it doesn't, it doesn't shake, it doesn't fear anything, it doesn't fear death. But to see that in each equality, that, ta- that, that real radical arising and passing away, uh, reverberates back onto the self in its relationship to the world it's in. Now, there I said the relationship of the self. That was wrong. It's the relationship of this satipanya, of this uh, bodhicitta or this nibbana dhatu. It depends what school you're in and what you feel happy uh, uh, with, with, what expression you feel happy with. So now, you know, we're getting this idea that there is something within us, this awareness, this very basic uh, intuitive intelligence, which is at the root of our being, hmm? and it moves into every moment with some sort of wrong view, some sort of wrong view. And that, that not knowing, see, it comes from a position of not knowing, is the basis of, the beginning of, the wheel of dependence origination, which is how the Buddha explains how we come to suffer. Hmm? Now, um, I think I said before in an earlier uh, talk when I was answering a question. If we go back to the to our little origins in this particular life, remember that we were we became alive as just a bundle of cells. So in that bundle, what did we know? And it's only through the growth of the senses that we come to collect, as it were, enough information, and then finally we find ourselves um, out in the open world and gasping for a bit of breath, and then and then we grow up, and all the time. Um, there's this presumption which is gained right back there in the womb that this must be me because this is what I experience. Now, that delusion stays with us all the time and 
it's only through meditation, by taking this objective position in ourselves, that we begin to break through that delusion. And the process of anicca, of transience, of impermanence, is coming from a slightly different angle, which is saying that there's, even if you hold on to it, it's going to disappear. Nothing stays the same. Everything is in a state of radical change. So that even the effort to try and hold on to something, to maintain a comfort, is, is, a, is, is a non-starter. It doesn't, it's not going to get you anywhere. So watching Anicca, even at the breath, is a constant undermining of that wrong view. A wrong view, remember, that has not come from a position of stupidity. That's the unfortunate thing about this English word, uh, ignorance. Yeah? There is another word, nescience, but nobody knows it, so there's no point. <laughs> only, only, the, only the dictionary knows that word. And, and it, means, it means a simple don't know, don't know, you see. And from that don't know, it's a frightening place to be. So one, one throws oneself into something, defines oneself as something. Now, this has happened to you all, I'm sure, at a time when you say being in a strange hotel uh, or in somebody's house uh, and, you, and you've just woken up and you don't know where you are, yeah? And there's that sudden, sudden sort of rush of panic as to who you are. And, and it's, only when you wait, it's only when you remember that, oh, you're in this hotel, that you can, that you can breathe again. Now, that panic, you see, is the self. The self, at that moment, the self can't define itself. So he's rushing around like a mad fool trying to, trying to work out what the hell it is. See? And so when it suddenly grasps it, oh, fantastic, you see? Then it's, then it's happy. Oh, it's me again. So that sense of, um, that sense of uh, transience, really seeing transience, is not only coming back to the idea that nothing in this world is worth holding on to, that's a direct quote from the Buddha, uh, but the fact that if it's transient, it can't be me because it's arising and passing away. So it's, as, we're, as we're watching it at all levels, remember at all levels, whether it's right there in the minuscule arising and passing away of a sensation, or whether we're just watching these leaves fall and just watching the change of leaves and just catching our feeling towards it. Sometimes if you stand by a river, uh, just... Just watch, watch the river coming at you and just catch your feelings that come up with that coming, the newness. And then turn around and watch it flowing away and just catch how your feelings are at letting something go. If there's a puddle around or a, a pond, uh, look into that and see how you feel when, when, it's, when, when there is no flow. Mm-hmm. So it's not as though uh, we have to do this meditation in order to, to break through these things. All this meditation is doing for us is making more and more clear to us what this satipanya is. Huh? So if we sit with the idea that right now I'm going to crack it, uh, I'm going to really break through this sitting like the Buddha did, <laughs> you can try it, uh, it usually ends up with severe frustration. So if we see our sitting simply as training, all we're doing is we're, we're just training ourselves to constantly lift ourselves into this position of at least the objective observer. Hmm? Now, from this position of, uh, of not-self, we've created these delusions. Right? The fundamental delusion is that I am uh, this person. That's the fundamental delusion. I am this personality and I am this body. And those... Uh, we call our sankharas. And a sankhara is all those things that we've been able to create through an act of will. 
So once you've got a body and you've got an eye, the eye will see. That's not a sankara. Whatever's coming into the eye is a given. What we do with, the, with, with that which comes into the eye or with the image that comes, that's our sankharas because there comes that um, intention into what we're doing. And that's building up a mood, it's building up an attitude, and it's building up a whole series of thoughts, it's building up a history. These intentions, remember, at all levels, in all areas of our lives, turn into an action. Right? So you have an intention, it turns into an action. When you've got similar actions going on, you've produced a habit. Okay? And once you've got a compendium of these habits, a collection of habits, that's your personality. And once you've got a personality, it just drives you towards your destiny until, of course, you come to meditate. And then you can reverse some of it and, uh, and hopefully end up with a, a decent destiny. <laughs> so here we are with this, um, with this uh, satipanya, this awareness, this buddha within ourselves, and then we're born. So that's the next stage, nama rupa, you're born. And with that born, with that being born, there, there arises this act of, these acts of cognition. So that this, this body-mind complex and the act of cognition rebound off each other. The one can't arise without the other. You can't, be, you can't, be, uh, you can't cognize something if, it, if there's nothing there. See, so there's, there's, there can't be a cognition unless there's something coming in through the, uh, through the perceptual faculties, the eye and so on. So once that's started, once you've got that, once you've got the consciousness and the, and the basic um, body, which has these six senses, so that's your next step, the salayatana, hmm, the six sense bases, then finally you can have some contact, and that's your next stage, your contact. Um, at the point of contact, there has to be these three things. You have to have the sense base, you have to have something that stimulates that sense base, and you've got to have that consciousness. Once that arises, then the mind, the perceptual faculty comes in, which knows what it is, but then that uh, quality of judgment... Now, this isn't a judgment to do with you know, uh, good and bad and all that. It just experiences what comes in as pleasant or unpleasant. It's as simple as that. So sometimes we get a sensation which is pleasant... Um, like when we're eating, and sometimes uh, we get a, a, something which is unpleasant, like when it's getting cold. So whatever sensation is comes in, after the contact, there is this relationship built up with it. So the relationship is, like it, don't like it. Now, once the self grabs hold of that as a, as a position, pleasant, unpleasant, you see, then it has to take a position. Now, its position comes from that fundamental misunderstanding that this is what it is. And it knows there is suffering. It's not, it's not happy. Hmm? Now, what is it that's not happy? See, what is it that's not happy? So we started off way back there in the womb being this, shall we say, this satipanya, this, this Buddha nature. Hmm? And it's formed a relationship. So when we talk about the self... We're talking about, we're not talking about something, we're not talking about an object, we're talking about a relationship. Huh? We're talking about a relationship. So, when, uh, when we're suffering, what is it that's suffering? You see? If it's not this very nature, which is our essential nature of the Buddha, that's what's suffering. And it's suffering because it's formed this wrong relationship. So, 
when we say the self, you see, uh, there's a tendency to uh, substantiate it. There's a, ten- a tendency to think that it's an object. But we're much closer, I think, to understanding what the self is when we realize it's to do with our relationship. So when this, uh, when this perception comes, that this is pleasant and unpleasant, right, the knowing, which is ignorant, which is creating the delusion, says to itself, you know, I've got, I've got, to, I've got to make myself happy. This is where happiness is. I've got, to, I've got to make it now or else I've had it. So whatever it sees creates a certain state, a mental state, which is happy, it'll want to grab it, hold it, and develop it. And once it's into that relationship, that's when we get that greed in all its forms. It doesn't matter what it is, power, sex, drugs, rock and roll, it doesn't matter what it is. The fact is that the more, the more I can have of it, the happier I will be. It's as simple as that. Having built that, that little castle, of, uh, that little place of, of joy, now, of course, it has to protect it. So anything which it sees is not pleasant, then it'll want to destroy, want to annihilate, get it out, push it away. And whenever that is too much, when it's uh, overwhelming, then it runs. It runs for it. It picks up its bags and goes for it. So, <laughs> so there we have the, the fundamental um, uh, psychology which arises out of that wrong perception of the self. This is me. This is mine. Right? So you've got on one side the attachment, the holding, the developing, and on the other side the protection and the pushing away, yeah? and the running away. Hmm? That's, all, that's all included in that word aversion. Hmm? So having got, having got to that stage, we then uh, very quickly can move into uh, immoral action, which is basically doing harm. It's doing harm to others and doing harm to myself. Hmm? And then once I've started doing once I've started doing harm, I'm into the second level of emotions to do with shame, guilt, horror, all that sort of stuff, remorse, regret. <coughs> all those flow in once I start doing something which is unwholesome. And of course, there are those. Uh, there's that side of the development which we take pleasure in, uh, but which are horrible. So you know, we like uh, we like getting angry at people. It's a relief. We like banging the door. We like being cruel. We like, um, you know, stepping on people's toes and doing things like that, and and uh, just saying that little sentence which really digs them, and <laughs> and like cruelty, uh, and then gen- uh, not, not being generous, being selfish. You see, all these things uh, can be very pleasant. So there's a whole area of unpleasant behaviour which we enjoy, and that of course is creating further psychological problems for us. Now, all that, all that is included in those three little steps after Vedana. So the Tanha, the Upadana, and the Bhava. So the Tanha is that movement from the self moving towards it to, uh, because it likes it, it wants it. So having, having perceived something as likable, it now moves towards it as wantable. I want that. No, just a minute. Want. It w- want that. Okay. Once that want has come, and this is the sequence of psychological events, according to uh, uh, the Buddha, the I comes in. See, the I doesn't come in first. In our language, we say, I want that. But it's not. It's, want I. 
First the desire arises, and then there's the association with the desire, there's the, um, there's the identification with desire, and that's the upadana, that's the grasping. Once that's happened, it's very difficult to stop the chaitana coming in, which is the will. The, because, and the reason is this, because the, uh, that delusion of I, I want... Uh, is coming, remember, directly from the Buddha, which the Buddha within, which is deluded. And with it, there comes the power of the will. And that's also coming from that center. You see? It's also coming from that center. So immediately we say, I, it's very difficult to stop the grasping, the actual going for the object. Hmm? And that's the bhava, that's the becoming. At that point, we've created an act. And that act now, as I say, repeated, becomes, uh, becomes a habit. Now, what we're trying to do in our meditation in terms of, um, in terms of uh, seeing the path through understanding dukkha, understanding how we create this um, uh, unsatisfactory uh, situation for ourselves, is to put our attention right in between that which we perceive as likable and unlikable and, of course, uh, neutral, and to catch that relationship of wanting, not wanting, and ignoring. Hmm? Not, not wanting, just, just simply ignoring it, just simply not knowing it. And if we put our attention there, it can't go. It can't, it can't move anywhere else. It can't go into I. Why is that, you see? It's because the awareness, this intelligence we have, this Buddha nature within us, has taken a completely different position. It's now become transcendent to the whole psychological process. It's now above it or beyond it, and it's watching it from above. Hmm? So it can't, you know, if, if we stay in that position, it can't, it can't go into that identity. It, can, it just can't do it. So in that, in that position, we're actually snapping the idea of me or mine. As soon as you see a desire and let it go, you're destroying constantly the idea that desire is me. I am the desire. Hmm? And it's through that process of seeing that that uh, we, can be, uh, we can find this realization through just understanding how we create suffering for ourselves. When I was in uh, Thailand, I did a tour of all the different techniques. The Thais are very creative, you know. And uh, I went down to a place called Boon Kanchanaram, which is on the, the bay around uh, Bangkok. And when I got there, the teaching, uh, I'd, I'd heard about it, uh, she had died. She was obviously a very good teacher. But the instructions were very simple. Uh, you don't stop doing what you're doing until it hurts. Really hurts. Really, really, really hurts. So you sit, and it starts to hurt, and you're not supposed to do anything until it really, really hurts really hurts. And then, when it really, really, really hurts and you can't handle it anymore, you then change your posture. But you do it very, very slowly, and all you're looking at is, as the pain arises, as the discomfort arises, you're just watching your reactions to it. And as it gets to the point where you can't take it anymore, and you're shaking with it, you just watch your reactions to that, you see. And then when it comes to a point where you really can't take it anymore... <laughs> <laughs> you say, intending to change. And as you change, you watch very carefully how the physical body, the physical sensations are changing, and how the mind is changing. Yeah? And then you come back to a state of comfort. So from walking, you might go to sitting, to lying down, whatever you're doing, 
but you keep doing it until you get to that point where you're able to see that change. And in seeing that change, you're seeing how... Uh, you're seeing the distinction between pain, which is both physical and mental, mm, and how you can take a position to it whereby you're not actually suffering. And by observing that process, you're actually undoing the idea of a self because the self is always identifying with that process. It says, oh, it's, it's pain, or I better go and get an aspirin. Yeah? It's, always, it's always moving off it. It's unable to stay with it. So even by going through uh, this process of understanding dukkha, of understanding um, how, how we create suffering for ourselves, we again undermine that wrong relationship which lies at the base, which is the idea that this is me, this is mine. Hmm? Now, um, <clears throat> when, it, um, when that uh, is finished, of course, you're also cutting the end of that process of the wheel of dependent origination, which is birth, aging, death, or arising, decay, death, arising and passing away. Now, you know, you, uh, should we say the uh, the traditional teaching is three lives, but uh, we, uh, but the other teaching, which is right there in the scriptures and is right there in the in the commentaries, is of course moment to moment. So as we as we um, see something which we like and we indulge in it then we become, we become the indulger and that arises and passes away. So with every sequence of actions in which we've indulged or which we've pushed away or which we've run away, we've become somebody and there was a beginning, there was a middle, there was a decaying and there was an end. So not everything we do uh, is part of the wheel of dependent origination. Not everything we do is continuing with ourself because... Uh, for instance, just uh, some simple action like opening a door. There's not a moral problem there, you see. It's only where a moral and ethical situation arises of greed, hatred, or, or aversion uh, that that wheel can actually turn. So when we do something out of a, um, out of a correct intention, you see, it's when we eat in order to nourish the body... Yeah, we eat to live, not live to eat. That's what they say, isn't it? When we eat to nourish the body, then we're not, we're not turning the wheel. In fact, we're going backwards on the wheel. Now, why is, why is it that the wheel doesn't come back on itself? So you start off with not becoming, and then you go down to not grasping, no I, then you come back to desire. No, the Buddha starts the negative side of the wheel, the wheel which is drawing us to enlightenment, back at ignorance again back at the point of uh, this, this, this uh, wrong view. And the reason he does that is because when we're meditating, we're always correcting that view. And whenever you correct a view, whenever you correct the way you're looking at something, the whole castle of cards that we've built on that wrong view simply collapses. You don't have to take everything apart. As soon as you see transience, the whole thing that you've built on transience completely collapses. And that's why these insights are immediate. Right? Not all these insights, of course, have a you know, colossal uh, effect on us. We don't sort of jump up and down and all that sort of stuff. But they're little, they're, they're, they're slowly just cutting away at the delusion, slowly cutting away at the delusion. And that's why the whole of the Buddha's teaching is concerned with right view. As soon as you see something, everything 
you know, uh, corrects itself. There was a friend of mine, and uh, he's going to pick me up, and we're going to go for a walk, and his car broke down. And uh, it was parked by the road there, so um, I, being an expert mechanic, said, well, open the bonnet, you know. So he opened the bonnet, and he, dis- he told me that the, uh, what had happened, the engine just cut. So my, di- my immediate diagnosis was, well, it's electrics. So we opened the bonnet, and I, uh, I pointed, you know, we tried it, and I said, uh, I said no, I said, uh, it, it, it's either... It'll be the dynamo, I said. And I pointed at this part of the machine. I said, it'll be the dynamo. Anyway, the, uh, the AA, I don't know what you call it in America, but the, the mechanic came. And uh, he opened the bonnet, and he immediately saw that the fan belt had broken. <laughs> and what he pointed to as the dynamo seemed to be different from my own uh, <laughs> description of a dynamo. Now, if my friend had, had taken my advice, of course, the car would have ended up in a scrap heap. But luckily, somebody who knew came along and saved the day. So, <laughs> so you can see how wrong view can end you up in a, in a hole. <laughs> so, uh, so there we see, you see, this mechanic came along and he said, and that was it. As soon as that right view was there, the whole problem disappeared. <clears throat> and I felt terribly, uh, I felt a real idiot, but there we are. So uh, that's why the wheel starts again with ignorance. And that's why the whole uh, force of the Buddha's teaching is right view, right view, to see things as they really are. Jnana dasana yata bhutan, to see, to understand, to know and see things as they have, if you want the direct translation, as they have come to be, to see the process. It's often translated as, you know, to see things as they really are, but it's not. It's to see things as they have come to be. So it's always catching that process in which we create the world we live in. Gee, can't stop talking. <laughs> then, there's, <laughs> then there's the final uh, characteristic of anatta, not self. So we've talked about that from the point of view of Anicca. If something arises and passes away, it can't be me, it can't be mine. And we've talked about it through seeing this dukkha, through seeing that, in fact, if I can take this transcendent position, this transcendent position to this mental process of greed and stuff, then uh, unwittingly I've snapped the self, I've broken the self, as soon as I'm in that position. Um, there's a lovely little quote here, actually, to do with Anicca, which I'd forgotten to read out, and it's... Um, it's William Blake, and I think, uh, I think he puts it in a beautiful little poetic way. I'm sure, I'm sure most of you know it. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. <laughs> so that's a lovely expression of how to, how, well, it's the Buddha mind. Uh, that's, that's, that's how we're supposed to be. Now, anatta, uh, the doctrine of not-self, is uh, just, just getting that position where instead of uh, within yourself when you're watching something, you see, um, and you turn it into an object with, that you're looking at, you see, it's, it's catching that little distance. Hmm? Although I talk in terms of space, I mean, it's, it just feels that you're looking at something. 
Uh, remember that uh, we're told that a child around about the age of, up to about the age of four months, doesn't have that distance. Everything is me, doesn't matter what it is. Hmm? It's all me. And only slowly after four months does this object arise out of this, out of this bath, which is me, and his mother, isn't it? See? And that object now, is, as it were, becomes something, something in the mind of the child as something that's not me, just, just the beginnings of a perception. By the age of uh, three, the child is very clear. This is my body, and I'm not that. Hmm? They're, very, they're very clear about what their boundary is. Hmm? All we're doing is continuing that process inward. That's all we're doing. We are slowly deciding, or rather we're slowly realizing that within us, all these things that I thought were part of me is actually an object. And uh, one of the things that the Buddha talks about when he talks about not-self is this idea of control. If If the self can't control it, how can it possibly be that? The whole idea of being a self is that you're in control. This is me. This is mine. You know, I, I do what I want. I do my own thing in my own way, in my own time. And, and, of course, you can't. So there's a constant destruction of this idea of a self every time in your ordinary daily life when you can't do what you want to do. If you can't do what you want to do, then you're not in control. Therefore, you can't be the self. And that's the, uh, that's the logic behind that. So here, you see, as we go into the body, I mean, even the body itself... I mean, we cut ourselves. What do we do? You know, you, you keep it uh, antiseptic, but who mends it? You're not in there telling the cells to do this and do that. Huh? The body just gets on with it. Huh? When you breathe, you see, what do you know of your body? See, even when you sort of go into yourself and say, what do I know? Do you know the matter of your bones? Do you even know you've got, I mean, we're told we've got them, but I mean, can you perceive it? Can you know it's there? The brain, we can't even feel the brain, heaven's sake. At least I can't. <laughs> Perhaps I need a CAT scan. And then uh, the whole system, how it's working. We're breathing. I have no control over it at all. If I stop breathing, I panic. The digestive system, I haven't a clue what goes on there. I mean, I'm told about enzymes and all that sort of stuff, but I'm, I don't feel anything at all. I just feel good. I haven't a clue what's happening. Even now, you see, if you, uh, if you look at me and your whole vision is filled with my face, right? This isn't uh, an ego trip. If, <laughs> if you fill your whole vision with my face, right, where's yours? Where's your face? It's just there in your imagination, isn't it? You haven't a clue. <laughs> And when you look in the mirror and you look at your face, um, you think that's how people see you. At least I do. But it's only when you take another mirror and have a look at what's in the mirror that you realise that, you know, you didn't know your ears were that big. (laughs) And you catch your your face from uh, the proper way that people see it. But normally that's not our vision of ourselves. So we walk around with this uh, enormous delusion of of either being... uh, Ugly or beautiful, and it's completely, it's completely our own uh, idea of ourselves. So uh, when, when you meditate, or when you rather contemplate on these sorts of things, uh, then again, it's just destroying this idea of who am I? Huh? 
Emotions. What? What? You know, we know we, uh, what control do we have over our emotions. You don't go to bed thinking, "Well, tomorrow I'll, I'll, I'll wake up depressed." You just wake up depressed. Tomorrow you say, "I'll wake up happy," and you do, and you think, "Oh, I've got some control." But, but you haven't a clue how you're going to wake up. You might not wake up. Heavens. I mean, take that. You see, we go to sleep with uh, a, a, a sheer presumption, a sheer presumption that tomorrow we're going to wake up. Just absolutely, you know, you go to bed, you feel absolutely comfortable, you're all curled up and it's all nice and warm, and there's just this underlying presumption that I'm going to wake up. Now, if the doctor said to you, you fall asleep, it it looks like curtains to me. Hey, you'd be there with pins in your eyes and (laughs) pulling your nails out. Anything anything to keep awake. (laughs) But we're quite happy to lose the self so, uh, you know, for eight, ten hours, some people 16, uh, as, long as, it, as long as we're absolutely certain within ourselves, it will reappear. And there's a lovely, uh, there's a lovely poem here which comes from my, uh, my favourite author, whom some of you might know, uh, Samuel Beckett. He's, um, he's known for his, uh, you know, getting to grips with death. I mean, he's got one of his plays was just a mouth to speaking. And every so often it would wake up, still here. That was one of the sort of refrains. It would just stop. Still here. See? <laughs> and is that, is, is, is that is at the edge of death as to what, what happens when you die? And he's got this, this very simple but, but a sort of lovely point. He says, just think. If all this, one day, just one fine day, just think. If one fine day, all this stopped. I like that. So, um, going back now to the Buddha's uh, original sort of understandings. So, he's had this experience. He, He now comes back on himself and he spends his time reflecting on how he got there. And he comes up with this. Uh, Wheel of Dependent Origination, which is the psychology of suffering. That's all it's about. It's the psychology of delusion. And he sees these three vantage points, and that's what he begins to teach. That's all he's teaching. To get into this position, uh, the vipassana, to see things as they really are, and to observe these three points of view. When we, are, when we finally make it, when we, when we have the glimpse, at least, of Nibbana, he, has, uh, he also talks about it in this way. There is a sphere, so we go back to the idea of a sphere, where there is neither earth nor water, nor fire nor wind. Hmm? Now you've got to be careful here, because this comes from a question as to where does the physical earth end? And he doesn't say the physical earth ends. He says there's a place where it finds no footing, okay? which is very different. Hmm? So the, phys- uh, our, uh, the Buddha's enlightenment did not destroy his body. Uh, he just found a different relationship with it. And for the rest of his life, 40-odd years, he lived in what he called Nibbana. And that's Nibbana in this life. Where there's no infinite space, consciousness, nothingness, perception, or non-perception. These refer to the four rupajanas, arupajanas. He says, no this world, no next world, no sun, no moon. There is, I say, 
No coming, no going, and no standing still. Now, we can understand in our meditation the no coming and no going because we can stand above, in our meditation, things arising and passing away. But there's also no standing still. In other words, that's not a position in relation to what's happening. It's transcendent, completely transcendent. There's no passing away and there's no arising. It is without ground. It's without ground. There's nothing underneath it. There's nothing holding it. It's without foundation and it's without support. And he says, just this is the end of suffering. Just this is the end of it. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in your meditation, when you get at least the position of very clearly being the observer, an observer of pain, you see, an observer of, of uh, physical pleasure, an observer of emotions, an observer of thought, you see, even though that we can't say that's a pure Nibbana because there's still the self there, at least we've got some idea there that there is no coming, no going, and there's no standing still within that process. Yeah? And it's, it's recognizing that that will draw your interest into really beginning to see that everything we experience is not me, not mine. And then, in those quiet moments, when you're very still, when there's just the breath, and you get that very strong sense of being the observer. So now that's, that's the... That's the subtlest of things that we produce. That's the subtlest of things that the uh, delusion has produced, this idea of I'm the observer, this is me. Hmm? And that is a reflection in, in the mind. So the image I use is when we watch TV. So when you watch TV sometimes, you can see your image in the screen. Now, you've got a choice. You're going to watch yourself watching TV or you're going to watch TV. If you watch TV, you then lose that sense of self which is in the screen. And that's what happens when, in your meditation, you feel yourself to be the observer and you're looking <coughs> with interest at an object such as uh, a feeling or a sensation and suddenly there's that collapse into it. Hmm? That collapse into it is the loss of self. And it's a direct perception by this satipanya, this Buddha within, this intelligent awareness of exactly what's going on. And when uh, we come away from that sort of experience, whether we like it or not, or whether we're even aware of it or not, there's been some undermining of delusion. Hmm? And that's, 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 those are the, the, the little power points. Often, when we're in that, there doesn't seem to be a comeback. We don't seem to have some sort of understanding. But uh, in time, remember, there's, there's this subtle change going on with the way we're looking at things. And it's changing the level of consciousness we're at. It's a very slow process, that's how it feels, of this slow changing. Yeah? And every so often... Uh, there may an insight come in terms of words, a sudden understanding. You suddenly find yourself behaving in a different manner. Uh, you're s reacting to a situation in a different way than you did before. And all these are telltales. Hmm? So here, we enter into the Eightfold Path. So from right understanding, moving into right attitude, it expresses itself through right speech, right action, right livelihood. Hmm? Now, 
the we the, this this um, this uh, noble eightfold path, remember, starts at any of those points. So when you make the effort to speak well, to speak truthfully, and all that, when you make the effort to do something which is wholesome, when your livelihood has a wholesome effect on you, it reverberates back on your attitudes. It reverberates back on your understanding. So the whole thing turns upon itself. Hmm? Turns upon itself. And in this way, over a, over a period of time, uh, we do feel a certain change within ourselves, hopefully for the better. So I think that, um, that brings me to a sore throat. <laughs> so I think I better stop before I die. So I hope my words have been of some assistance, and I can only hope that in the very shortest length of time you will be fully liberated. Thank you. goodness that arises with my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom
austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.